Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail. I'm Mike Bowden-Distel, I'm head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves, work primarily on data side, joined with my colleague as always, Joanna Marsh, who does the editorial writing for the site on the railroad industry. Good to see you, Joanna. I always see you, you always seem to be um, have, be very busy and have lots of articles up on the site, and this is, week is no exception. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's always busy in the rail industry, which I, which is good, I guess. Yeah, it's good. So yeah, good seeing you too. <laughs> so today we have um, a few topics to talk about. Uh, so the Norfolk Southern derailment, I think that's sort of the, the, the um, thing that won't go away. So we'll talk a little bit about that. I can go through a few charts in our FreightWave Sonar product that talk, give some early indications that the intermodal rates are declining in uh, 2023 uh, for domestic intermodal, at least when you back out the, the fuel surcharges uh, from that. And uh, we'll also talk about your article on Wabtec's push into potentially alternative fuel locomotives, which you know I'd like to hear from you about how sort of near term or, or, or further out you know those type of things are. I mean, it's always been a really popular uh, company um, with investors when I was a, a stock analyst. Um, and then also uh, talk about a little bit about the latest push to get class one railroads to provide additional paid sick days. You wrote an article up about um, CSX there. And then I think you're working on an article talking about how uh, Bernie Sanders has made this big push to get the other railroads to say, hey, why can't you be more like uh, CSX? So we'll talk about those things. But first, um, here we'll start with the, the Norfolk Southern uh, derailment. You have an article up on the site. There it is. Um, there's been a lot of just really striking, um, you know, pictures from from this uh, in, in various things. But um, wanted to hear from you. So, what's the what's the latest here with with the derailment? Yeah, it's funny because I feel like the the service updates keep changing. Um, so, uh, so for now the. Um, so Norfolk Southern uh, released a service update today saying that, uh, you know, the two late main lines um, at the site, um, one of them um, is uh, working now and, and the other one, um, they're still trying to restore service. Um, but they, um, but Norfolk Southern and, you know, a lot of uh, invest, you know, state and federal um, investigators and officials um, have descended upon the site. Um, and I believe they were able to clear out um, some of the uh, some of the trains, um, uh, some of the, I'm sorry, <laughs> some of the rail cars uh, uh, from, from that site. Um, actually, I believe Norfolk Southern said the other day that they, they were able to clear out um, as of you know, several days ago, they were able to clear out you know four of the five um, cars carrying the vinyl chloride. Um, I'm not sure where they are in terms of the fifth car, um, but uh, you know, but they are trying to 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 move things um, out of the way. And um, and um, in the meantime, those those uh, rail cars um, will be uh, staged in a, in another area where the National Transportation Safety Board can take a look at things and kind of, you know, get the investi investigation rolling. Yeah, I mean, you would think this is going to be a, just a major investigation. I mean, it's, it's a situation where like a lot of times when, you know, hear about a derailment, it's like I'm sort of, you know, conditioned to not pay all that close of attention because derailments aren't not as uncommon as people think. But most derailments, it's kind of like they happen in the middle of nowhere. They spill some grain or weed or something. It gets all cleaned up before even the local news crews can can get there. This is kind of an extraordinary one that happened. Um, looked like in a, in a populated, you know, area. Okay, it's a town of five thousand people, but a lot of people were right there had to be evacuated. 
it was hazardous mm-hmm. materials. And, um, you know, it, th- it seems like a lot of people are still concerned about going back to their, to their homes. You know, it's kind of ugly when you look at, just go to Twitter. I try to stay away from Twitter just because I think it's so distracting, but you go to Twitter and just type in Norfolk Southern and just sort of the, um, the, the comments there where all of a sudden Norfolk Southern is kind of the, um, the, the public enemy number one, um, you know, because of this uh, de- derailment and, you know, you sort of have to think back and say, well, the, the one that it sort of cosmetically looks like from the pictures was the Loch Megantic. Um, but the difference is this one, no one was was heard, at least not that we know of. Maybe later on we'll hear of people that, that breathed in fumes or something. But um, that one in Canada was, was, you know, maybe the worst tragedy in the history of, um, you know, railroading. Uh, but, um, you know, this could have been much worse than it, than it was. And you sort of think, well, isn't this something that some of those, um, you know, tank cars that are supposed to have sort of the head shields, et cetera, you know, the, the, the thicker insulations that, um, you know, came, came, came you know, a lot of these regulations came about as a result of that Loch Megantic, it seems like this type of um, situation was, was what it was designed to, to prevent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I believe those NTSB actually noted that, um, uh, that the tank cars, you know, did what they were supposed to do in terms of, you know, if, if there is an accident. And, you know, that is something that um, that the Federal Railroad Administration and other railroad people, you know, that that's what they, uh, they, they look at, um, you know, what happens to, to tank cars, you know, when they when they do get into derailments and accidents. And also, um, how does where the tank cars are positioned, um, uh, on the train, how does that affect accents mm-hmm. as well? And um, and Norfolk Southern, I believe on Monday afternoon had to, um, you know, they they sort of had to vet the the, the other cars and uh, and you know NTSB said that you know the the, the tank cars or I'm sorry the rail cars were able to um, to uh, do what they were supposed to do in terms of like how how they're supposed to. Uh, um, I can't think of the word now, but you know, sort of vent. <laughs> the, uh, oh, the kind of crash vent. worthiness of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, yeah, so they were able to do it. So, yeah. So, um, and, and I know, you know, that was something it, before, you know, before like Lac Magantic, just uh, you know, the 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 issue of you know the, the tank cars being able to, um, you know, withstand those uh, th- those accidents, mm-hmm. and so. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it you know it definitely could have been a lot worse, you know, uh, with the Lac Megantic accident. You had, um, you know, you had that the, the town kind of burst into flames, and you had you know multiple people dying, and so, um, so you know, so to hear that that, um, you know, for the for the most part, I mean, you know, time will tell, of course, but like for the most part, no one was injured. You know, it was was really um, kind of the best case scenario you could have if you had to have this kind of thing happen, I guess. So. Okay, so this next question I'm going to ask you is to speculate. So, w- what do you think might happen, if anything, as far as additional safety regulations that comes out of this type of accident? Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see because I think, um, because you know, you have the you, you have a, a faction w- within the the rail industry. You know, lots of lots of um, union members questioning. Um, whether whether headcount, um, not just headcount, but also just whether operations um, in, in the drive to uh, deploy precision scheduled railroading, um, whether that had um, sort of um, affected safe, 
you know, sort of safety standards or even just like the ability to inspect things. Of like on one hand, you do have the the technology um, that that's coming on, which is valuable, and I, I think the technology question is sort of a long term one that unions and, and the railroads will have to sort of um, have to continue to have dialogue on. Um, but on the other hand, I, I remember um, several uh, several years ago, I. I or if it wasn't maybe that was long, it might've been like a year or two ago. <laughs> it seems like a long time. Um, I, I wrote a piece um, interviewing someone um, who, who was working for, for one of the class ones. And it wasn't, it was a maintenance person and just kind of the idea that um, uh, because of PSR and, and because of trying to maintain that strict schedule that, that affected um, how, uh, your 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 timetable in terms of being able to get inspections done like so and you know being able to to clear out of a inspection space you know before the next train comes in so um and then of course you have the other issues too with um uh whether operations like whether uh workers are, are given territories that are too big for them to cover um you know with the same amount of time and you know um and the uh, that they have, so they don't really have more time to do the extra territories, like trying to do more with, with less. Um, so I, I don't know, it'll be interesting to see, um, what happens in terms of, uh, what regulations will come out. I mean, I, I think something, I, 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 I don't know. I just personally think that something will come out, but I just don't know. Um, was it? So it's like eight, a year and a half to two months before the final report comes out. So I don't know. And it might, might also depend like who's the president at that time. But I, I think, uh, right as as right now, there's just a lot of momentum, um, I believe, to 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 look at you know safety regulations and, and are they enough? Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, I think that um, there's there's a big push right now on safety. I think it it could hurt the railroads' case that they could have one person you know cruise. Although one of the railroads says don't use one person cruise, call them deployment into something other. The one person cruise. Uh, so so I think that could happen. I think maybe there could be regulations. I'm just speculating here have the trains run slower during, you know, in the middle of populated areas because mm-hmm. those chemicals, I mean, you could have the strongest tank car in the world. If it's going 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, and it comes in and it hits like those head shields are going to, are, are going to cause, and it's, it's going to um, cause an explosion. So I, I think you could see speed derailments. And the other thing that was interesting is like, what's unusual about that derailment was that it seemed like it was a mechanical failure on like one of the axles. And that's not usually um, the reason for derailments, usually the reason for derailments is that there's something, the matter with the track that hasn't been, um, you know, maintained, but, um, you know, so, so there could be something, you know, on, on the mechanical side as, as, as well, but I think that's gonna be interesting to, to see, but, uh, we'll, we'll move on. I have three other topics I want to cover, uh, today. So I'll go through this next one is, you know, have some, uh, intermodal charts. I think are going to be interesting for this audience that are involved in rail intermodal. So let's start with this first one. So this is from a company that processes transactions. And so these are intermodal contract rates. So domestic intermodal contract rates, they're, they're door to door. And this particular data set excludes fuel surcharges. So we're just looking at the, at, at the line haul rates and you do see in white is 2023. And that had been kind of right on top of 2022 in um, green up until let's say a week or so ago, and that sort of is, is broken downward. And now those rates are showing down about three and a half percent year to date. Um, think that's going to 
uh, ha- have a, a steeper decline than that once more of the intermodal you know, contracts roll over. And you do have to sort of have the context, which this chart shows nicely that domestic intermodal contract rates up double digits uh, percentages two years in a row. You see 2020 was in purple, kind of in line with 2019. You saw that step up double digits in 2021 in orange and then 2022 in, in, in green. And uh, this is kind of a year where I think the uh, domestic intermodal companies give a little bit of that rate back when you exclude fuel, at least. Going to turn to the next one, which um, I think is also interesting, sort of a, we have a similar chart on van. So these are dry van uh, contract rates. And so um, what's different about this one is those rates are falling steeper. So to year to date, I just said that intermodal was down three and a half percent. These are down 8% year to date. And then the other thing that was different is 2022, there was much more of a downward trajectory in the um, dry van contract rates uh, starting in, let's say, the beginning of the second half, called, it was called the third quarter of, of last year, where it felt you know, during the year was intermodal kind of flattened out, was kind of flat through through most of, of, of last year. So situation where drive-in contracts do tend to change ahead of intermodal contracts. So uh, for intermodal, th- those you know, companies out there involved in, in intermodal, I think you can look at, at, at drive-in to sort of give a little bit of a preview of where those rates are going. I want to flip to the next one. I have the intermodal contract savings index. And this is just the difference uh, between, uh, you know, dry van rates and intermodal contract. When you include fuel surcharges for both, you have to include fuel surcharges for both because the, the fuel savings associated with intermodal is a big part of that uh, savings that the shipper sees uh, when, when using intermodal. And the, the you know the white line shows uh, for for all you know lengths of haul, and we limit this data series to the same five digit origin and destination uh, pairings. And so, in a lot of cases, it's shippers that use intermodal and uh, drive van in the same lanes, actually from the same facilities, uh, depending on whether something's time sensitive or or not. Right now, it's showing a nine point eight percent you know discount at intermodal versus uh, you know drive van that's kind of at the low end of the range you think of the typical range as being sort of 10 to 15 percent and that uh, uh, green line is simply the the just the limiting to the longer haul lanes those that are 1200 miles or longer so those would be your LA to Dallas LA to Chicago those 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 type of lanes where there is a, a typically a larger a spread associated with with, with with those lanes and so you put those things together and say, well, you know, would expect intermodal contract rates to fall, make that spread a little bit wider um, to get to the, the normal part of the range. So it's just another uh, data set that suggests to me that uh, shippers can negotiate intermodal contracts to, to be lower in addition to uh, drive-in uh, contracts. Uh, so with that, uh, I want to move on to the next topic, which is another article that you wrote. Uh, it has to do with, uh, you know, WabTech. You interviewed an executive at, at, at WabTech. Um, you know, there it is. U.S. needs says U.S. needs to invest in hydrogen rail technology. This is a company that there's always a lot of interest in. I think you know when I was a stock analyst, I think I got more calls on WabTech than any of the other companies that I that I covered. Um, but but what did you uncover from um, you know interviewing uh, uh, WabTech? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty neat. So it was um, it was actually initially supposed to be part of. Um, the story was initially going to, to, to be about the, the partnership between WabTech and the two um, 
the, the two national laboratories, Oak Ridge and Argonne, but then the WebTech uh, VP, um, Philip, I'm blanking on his last name, I'm sorry, but you can read it in the article. Um, uh, he uh, had just kind of just some interesting ideas about just um, hydrogen technology in general. So that's kind of how it ended up being a two-parter series. Um, so of course, you know, you have that, that partnership be, be with, with the national laboratories, which you can also read about, um, in another article, but, um, but was interesting about the WebTech, I think I, several things. I mean, one was just, uh, the idea that, um, you have, uh, transportation modes kind of collaborating on, on technology, um, that's, you know, to, to, to power, um, you know, how can you use hydrogen um, to to power uh, to, to to power motor vehicles or to power you know vehicles? And so you know, you have that mm -hmm. WebTech partnership with General Motors, and then kind of related to that too. You know, I mean, if you if you have if you're going to be using hydrogen more, um, you know, what sort of you know obviously production is going to have to grow, and, and the infrastructure to, um, to to carry that hydrogen is also going to have to be have that partnership with um, BNSF or BNSF's involvement um, with a, a group with the Midwest, including in the Midwest, I'm sorry, which includes Bakken Energy and in terms of trying to get that hydrogen infrastructure. So I, I so I, I, I thought, I guess that was one thing I was interesting um, looking at hydrogen in general is just kind of, it's, it's not just one company trying to do everything. It's just, you know, because there's just so much, to tackle and so and and there's a lot of expertise from from various modes and 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 um and other um stakeholders in this so yeah so that's one of the things and there's some other things too um i think uh the idea of um he mentioned um sort of is there a way and this is kind of more of like future forward thinking so you know it, it's it's still sort of abstract but like is there a way to use um, so if the so if the locomotives can carry electricity because um, because they have that capability, you know, can they actually carry electricity using the rail network? So you know, can you use? I mean, which I thought was kind of a neat uh, neat way of looking at things in terms of you know, is there are there other uses beyond the rail ne network? Just you know, beyond <laughs> just what's been doing now. Like, can you transport electricity on it? Um, and of course, you know, you've, you've had that discussion about like electrification of the railroads, but you, you know, can you, can you still transport that electricity without having music, you know, the categories, of course, that's also about locomotives and, and moving whatever, but, um, yeah, so that was another thing. Oh, and the other thing I think was interesting was just, um, I mean, the push for all this research is because, um, you know, that it's, it's not just the United States going for these technologies. You have um, countries around the world that have been actually doing this kind of research for a while, and the United States is just starting to, to sort of catch up on this thing. So um, you have that that race as well um, in terms of uh, um, you know transportation related technologies, but also just you know hydrogen infrastructure in general. So there's there was a lot to unpack in there. Yeah, so you have a sense of, is it going to come first to the yard locomotives? Is it is it easier to implement in yard locomotives just because you don't have to carry that fuel mm -hmm. with you and worry about having the fuel all along the way and have something like a tender car? Yeah, possibly. I mean, I don't think they've, I the, they didn't really specify it. I mean, it would make sense um, to, to look at it in that. I mean, I think that's kind of where they're lots of where the industry green efforts are, you know, looking at, you know, yard operations and just seeing, you know, 
what can be done now? So, and then building upon that experience and knowledge to sort of transfer that onto, onto the network. Yeah. Yeah. And want to move on to now the, the, um, the piece I think you're working on now is there's this letter from Bernie Sanders to the railroad CEOs with the exception of CSX. He left, he left uh, the CSX out of it and basically said, um, you know, CSX made this uh, new thing to, to give workers paid leave and sort of the specifics there is it's two unions, Brotherhood of Maintenance and Way um, Employees, Brotherhood of Railway uh, and Carmen together. They only represent about 5,000 workers. So it's, it's certainly not most of the, the workers on that railroad, but um, so they get four, four paid sick days on an annual basis at 100% rate uh, of their rate of pay. Ability to take up to three additional um, paid sick days on an annual basis provides the op- option for employees to contribute those unpaid sick days to um, either a 401k or get a payout and, and get paid for those unused sick days. And he writes this piece to the other class one CEOs essentially saying, well, why can't you do the same thing? This would only be 1% of your, your profits. Um, you know, what do you make of uh, this uh, political football and uh, thoughts on whether the other railers are going to follow CSX's lead? Yeah, yeah. It, it is interesting how, well, this week has been kind of interesting in terms of the sick leave issue because you, you have you know, the CSX announcement um, for starters in terms of, you know, the, the two, the, the two unions and then, um, and then, of course, you have the union leaders urging for that to be wi- to adopted more widely with um, among the other class ones. Um, but then you also have, which um, I'm trying to <laughs> I'm working on the story right now. Um, you you also have uh, just other um, discussion about it. Like as you mentioned, that the Bernie the the Bernie Sanders letter. Um, he actually held. Um, a press conference um, earlier today uh, about the letter, but also just about sick leave in general. And actually a a lot of, several of the um, union leaders spoke at that, spoke at that as well. Um, And uh, with the idea that, you know, this is, this week is the the 30th anniversary of the Family Medical Leave Act. And so, um, and so that's kind of, how they're framing things right now and, and, and trying to get the sick leave discussion back out there. Um, and um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens um, in terms of whether they'll get bipartisan support and, and what kind of bipartisan support um, they'll, they'll get if that does happen. Um, because uh, so Bernie Sanders involvement in this issue um, is kind of related to what happened in December with the collective bargaining um, agreements and, um, you know, some maneuvering in in Congress in terms of uh, seeing whether sick leave um, can be sort of introduced in in a bill or something um, as part of the, um, you know, way to to, to get the agreements um, moving forward. Um, And... uh, and it was interesting, I think, in the Senate, there, or, yeah, it was the Senate, there were some interesting um, uh, Republicans, <laughs> I would say interesting Republicans, but like, mm-hmm. it, it was interesting because uh, everyone's interesting, um, uh, because I believe, like, you know, Mark Rubio signed, signed onto that, you know, calling for, for sick leave um, for, for railroad workers and um, just people that, you know, just people that you might not necessarily um, 
mm-hmm. expect to, to be on that. So, you know, it, it'll be interesting. Yeah, like I said, just to, to see uh, which Republicans uh, come out in support of that and um, and, and who they are. Uh, because at the, Cerner, at the Sanders um, press conference, there was a Republican um, senator who was also there. And I have to... Um, I'm unprepared. <laughs> Live TV. I have to be. Uh, yeah, but uh, I'll be writing that up fairly shortly, so um, you can catch it okay. more. more well, great. Well, we'll we'll be sure to read that article. And everyone wants to be the champion of the working class. Depending, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle uh, you're on. Um, with the last twenty seconds, uh, just want to mention who we're going to have on the next couple of weeks. Uh, next week, we'll be talking to Herman Hackstein. He's the president of the Pri- Private Rail Car Food and Beverage Association works on behalf of shippers. And on March 2nd, we're going to have Dan Elliott, the former chairman, U.S. Surface Transportation Board, now serves as an attorney working on behalf of railroad shippers. So be sure to tune into those things and hope everyone has a great day.